Nice haircut, by the way. <laughs> oh, you like my haircut? Yeah, thank you. Sean or me? Oh, no. <laughs> Actually, it's it it pretty good. Oh, nice. Haircut. Hind tights. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Transect, a podcast about archaeology in BC. I'm one of your hosts, Sean P. Connaughton. Uh, my name is Cody. And Ian. And today we have a special guest, Professor Al McMillan. Al, hello. Ah, hello, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we want to do a little introduction. I think Ian's going to take the reins here. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Al McMillan, uh, it's very nice to have you on the podcast. You Thank were you. Uh, my supervisor at SFU during my during my master's, gave me lots of uh, incredible advice and uh, loads and loads of red ink. <laughs> 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 Always helpful, but uh, you... We're at UBC with Dr. Charles Borden doing a master's, 1969. Yeah. What year? 1969. Wow. And then, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> and you moved to Douglas College after that and uh, created the Department of Anthropology and Sociology over there. Moved to uh, also do a position at SFU. Uh, and that's when I met you in 2008. I was an incoming grad student coming out of undergrad and you were uh, faculty at SFU and took me on for mm -hmm. a, a master's and uh, yeah it's a I am I have some questions about the the early days at UBC I'm really excited to dig into but uh, <laughs> yeah let's do it yeah thank you for coming and uh, yeah it's exciting we're here in Port Moody and we've got some uh, some of the which brewery do we go to? Uh, we got doubled up on Twin Sales. Twin Sales today. Yeah, we got yeah. the Dat Juice. Mm -hmm. And then Cody brought the uh, Con Leche. It's a horchata style. <laughs> Milk style. <laughs> All right, I'm staying away from that. Yeah. I'm black. <laughs> yeah. So we have, we've already had some overlap here. We've got, uh, uh, you're, you live in Port Moody now, Sean. I do. You live just around the corner. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Cody grew up in uh, Al's uh, wife's mother's hometown very small town <laughs> in Saskatchewan is that right the, yeah it's it's even at like six degrees of separation it's still really remarkable because it, it's a town that like most it, it would go by like 99.9% .9 of people could go their entire lives and never even get mentioned of its existence it's it's really exciting when you it's like someone else from the club it's really cool <laughs> what's the name of the town again Paradise Hill Saskatchewan Paradise and I wasn't far away in Prince Albert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is before, I didn't even, there's the original Saskatchewan story. Before UBC, before the West Coast, mm -hmm. Saskatchewan. You should and do you did undergrad at... Um, at Saskatoon, that's at right. At Saskatoon. Yeah, you should get into the origin story, like how Al got into this. Yeah. Was it, were you into archaeology prior to undergrad at Saskatoon? I think, I always thought I'd be... An archaeologist, or study ancient history at least of some kind. That's all I was really interested in when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I headed off at 18 to Saskatoon and University of Saskatchewan, and they had no such program. <laughs> and uh, I, typical of so many people at the time, was told I have to get job-oriented right. education. <laughs> yeah. So I went off to class each day with a briefcase with big, heavy textbooks, and I took chemistry and physics and calculus, and I was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and then the very next year, they opened the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology. I like that equal billing. One faculty member, Zenon Paretsky, but he was young and incredibly enthusiastic, and I was into it. Yeah, where is he from? Sorry? Where is he from? He came up from California ah, to start that department. Okay. And, uh, you know, with a small core of very enthused students, a number of whom went on for careers in archaeology mm -hmm. out of that very first group at U of S. And that was really good. Um, but, so you who, know, else, who else came out of that first cohort? Uh, Dave Mayer. Uh, who stayed at Saskatoon for most of his career, full faculty member. Is he and Ian Dick, who went oh. to the what's now the Canadian Museum of History. Oh, yeah. And yep. Tim Jones, who uh, worked for the Archaeological Society of uh, Saskatchewan and was a contractor, and there were a few other people. Does hmm? Mayor do planes? Yes. Yeah, yes, I know did. I know his name. Yeah, I know him. Yeah, he yeah. published lots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
What was Zen, uh, Zenon Peretsky was his name? Yes. What was his uh, specialty? Gads, I don't even know. Uh, he was. Uh, I've never heard that name before. He was interested in a lot of out there sort of things. Yeah. Uh, but I just remember him as uh, very enthusiastic. Uh, at that point, his entire effort was in getting the program going and getting himself going as a young faculty member teaching a number of classes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's obvious I couldn't have stayed on much longer there with one faculty member so because I was taking history classes too trying to get a double major Mm -hmm. um, I worked in the summers for National Historic Parks and so I'd been at Fort Battleford and Fort (laughs) Lower Fort Gary and do you do you go to oh, your yeah. no that's just like that's just triggering some real memories of me out at like the recreation of Fort Battleford on field schools and everything. And, yeah, I, I know all that stuff. Uh, was Ernie Walker at U of S? Or sorry, that, later, later. That's oh, well sorry. after well, I later. left. Okay. You know. I'll, I'll get to that one later. <laughs> that was long ago. <laughs> so I came out to Fort Langley just for a summer job. Yeah. And I was already you know, had made my plans to go back to Saskatoon, but it began to get into West Coast lifestyle Mm -hmm. and think maybe going back to Saskatoon wasn't such a wonderful idea. (laughs) I've seen the photos of this era. (laughs) So I went uh, off to UBC one day and met Wilson Duff. Mm -hmm. And Wilson and I got on just wonderfully and Wilson shepherded me through. He got me into grad school that fall. Wow. This is like July (laughs) and he got me into grad school that fall and I was Wilson's student primarily rather than Charles Borden's. Uh Uh, So I was you know taking all of his courses undergraduate and graduate on uh, various First Nations stuff and just fascinating stuff. What does he like? Hmm? What was he like? He was a wonderful teacher, a deep thinker. Uh, in the early years, he was really great, solid anthropologist, ethnographer, tied to archaeology. He got into a lot of trippy things later toward the end of his mm-hmm. life, trying to get into the mental state of ancient Haida artists. But Haida art just consumed him, mm-hmm. and he was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, great person to work with. But anyway, I also, of course, met Charles Borden and uh, took his various classes. So, God, I remember one field project a number of years ago. There were a bunch of UBC students there, and I said, oh, yeah, I was at UBC long ago. I studied under Borden and Duff at UBC, (laughs) and they looked at me, and I had a sudden realization that that was exactly, absolutely exactly as if I'd said, I I studied under Boas at Columbia. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, yes, there was a. I actually, I wasn't aware of uh, how active they were in the program up until what the mid seventies, right? Mm-hmm. When I was there, no, um, oh, Duff. And, sorry. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, up until yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And um, then out of that, I'd, I'd had some field. You know, Zenon took us out on little digs in Saskatchewan. It was great, and I'd been to Musqueam with Borden. Mm-hmm. But my first real field work. Borden got, that was when George MacDonald organized the North Coast Prehistory Project, and he called Charles Borden and said, I need some of your students. Do you have good people to send up? And Borden sent me, Knut Fladmark, Gay, oh, wow. who was then Gay Calvert, mm-hmm, now right. Gay Frederick, right. and Bjorn Simonson was in that first group, too. And so we all it's went a to yeah, the super crew, man. <laughs> we, well, we weren't then. <laughs> we were young students, <laughs> and so we all went up to <coughs> excuse me, Prince Rupert in 1967, and that was my first intensive field season. It was a four-month field season. We we're up there when I don't think winter rains were had ended yet. <laughs> yeah, man. And this was uh, at the boardwalk site. No, uh, it, we were staying just off the boardwalk site, and we excavated there in the following seasons. But that year, we were excavating at Dodge Cove, right in the uh, Cove Bayou. Yeah, well, we were in ex- the Cove. Yeah, and I mean, we're yeah. excavating further out on Garden Island. Okay. The locals called Graveyard Island. We're out there. And that island is supposed to be entirely 
man-made, so I hear. It's incredible. You could consider the entire site, the entire island, an artifact. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, it was initial occupation on that beach and building up over time. And it's a deep deposit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, it's entirely cultural. It's a very interesting site, these fabulous lines of... uh, canoe runs up, it looks like driveways right. all the way along one side of the village. It was a, a great site. So yeah, I had a couple of uh, really interesting summers with George MacDonald and lots of good people I was working with and who went on in archaeology. Mm-hmm. That sounds yeah, fantastic. That was, that was great. So and so then, uh, yeah, so I finished the master's degree at UBC. Mm-hmm. And went off. In those days, you went off for your obligatory wandering <laughs> around Europe for a year, sort of thing. Yeah. And by the time I came back, you know, I had, there was expectation I should <laughs> find a job. <laughs> uh, Wilson, <laughs> Wilson had asked me to uh, go into the graduate program, the doctoral program mm-hmm. there, and I said, no, no, I need to do some things first. Mm-hmm. And I heard about this college brand new opening in New Westminster, Douglas, and I applied there and became their first anthropologist. And uh, yeah, so my life evolved predictably from there. House, marriage, kids, mortgage, (laughs) 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 job. (laughs) So uh, I didn't, uh, well, yeah, so that's the way my life went for quite a long time, was just getting courses in order and, and developing a program and raising kids and all that stuff. Sean, you know about I, that. I know a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, were, were you the only faculty member there then at uh, Douglas? Initially, but very quickly they hired uh, a cultural anthropologist, and we built up a department uh, you know, fairly rapidly to yeah. like three and four people. But I, w- I initially went in and set up the program. That must mm-hmm. have been really exciting. I mean, you had sort of the you could kind of create it as any way you wanted to based on your experiences and, and how you thought of it at the time. It yes. must have been really awesome. Yes, that's true. Um, if I'd been older, I think I would have developed it in quite a different right. way. I hadn't had the experience at that mm-hmm. point, and we all tend to replicate what we're familiar with. Yeah. And so it developed in fairly predictable ways, but still. You didn't have the uh, collection of slides yet. <laughs> you know, it was a really good deal. My first sabbatical, my one semester sabbatical, part of my application was to go live in my van with my wife and a baby <laughs> and travel all through the American Southwest and the northern half of Mexico mm-hmm. taking slides to use in teaching. <laughs> Well, people have it so. People have it so easy now, as they just steal oh, images yeah, off yeah. the internet. Yep. But in those days, people had to take their own images, and they jealously guarded their own images. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to show Teotihuacan as an example of you know urban achievements in the Americas, I had to go there and take those pictures. Mm-hmm. And you know, interestingly, the institution supported that. Yeah, that's really odd. Because you had to cultivate that. You had to create that, curate that. And, and I mean, the work that went into teaching, I mean, PowerPoint changed the game in like the late. Total, creating, creating totally courses changed the PowerPoint game. PowerPoint yeah. is still difficult, uh, but to actually have to curate all those images yourself is, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still see uh, older faculty that have uh, just binders and binders. There's just so much material. You see the overheads and everything. Yeah. And, it's mm-hmm. in, and in slides, like you're saying. I'm just gradually throwing all of mine out now. Are, they, are, they, are you digitizing? I was thinking more of my uh, overheads. I've thrown out hundreds of oh, them. Yeah. The slides, some are digitized. My yeah. Northwest Coast ones are, but yeah. maybe not the others. Well, we still use the, the field forms, which... They didn't start with you. Those are oh, those those were uh, provincial museum forms, most of which I adapted for our work in Barclay Sound. Mm-hmm. They're still quite effective. Well, we, should, uh, we, should we jump into that? Should we jump into Barclay Sound? Yeah, yeah. So you this the major. It's going on how many years now for Barclay Sound? Well, let me work my way up to that. Okay. Um, and, uh, the Barclay Sound stuff actually started 
its origins were way back in the mid-70s mm-hmm. when okay. uh, uh, an emergency excavation, you know, one of those situations you're familiar with when the bulldozer's already taken off all the top layers and materials everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, In Denis St. Clair's hometown of Port Alberni, and so Denis went rushing up and uh, got the local museum on side, got the two First Nations on side, really got this set up properly, but he was teaching for a living, and this was like May, it was a long field season that year, mm-hmm. and uh, so Bjorn Simonson was provincial archaeologist at the time, and he called me and said, we need somebody. So out I went, and Denis and I struck up a partnership, and we worked through the next, you know, we're, we had three field seasons, the third one was surveying, and, uh, and then that project was over. and. Uh, in the later 70s, I must admit, I became disillusioned with what archaeology had become. In the heights of processualism, I felt it had little value for anyone working with communities. It wasn't dealing with their history and stories they wanted told. And I got more and more into other things. That's when I wrote my textbook on First Nation cultures yeah. and teaching and all of that. But Denis and I still went out quite a few summers over the 80s looking for a good project but it took us and we put several funding proposals in but finally it didn't all click in till the 1991 field season when we had fairly good funding in place Mm -hmm. and we could start a longer term project Mm -hmm. so uh, that was the the Barclay Sound research is divided actually into a number of sub projects and so we started out uh, as a three-year project with the Toquat Archaeological Project, right, dealing with the Toquat right. First Nation, including at their major site of Toqua mm-hmm. in Nuchanwulth, all the endings ought mean people of. So for each of these three groups we worked with, we went to their origin site, their place where they came into being. Mm-hmm. So Toqua for the Toquat. We did full coastal coastline survey for the traditional territory. We excavated at a number of sites, but three major sites. And uh, that lasted a couple. The original funding was for two field seasons and an analysis year, and we did that. But after that, the First Nation brought us back for several more field seasons for more applied stuff that mm-hmm. they were concerned about. And so that got the ball rolling, and then we worked with the Tsashat First Nation, at, primarily at Tsasha, although we tested a few other sites as well. And uh, I should go back to the Toquat and just say mm-hmm. they were in active negotiations for treaty, and they wanted that information, first mm-hmm. of all for treaty negotiation, but secondly to take over management of the heritage sites. With the Tsashat, it was different because Tsasha is not a reserve. It's in Pacific Rim National Park. Mm-hmm. And so the Tsashat wanted to demonstrate their cultural heritage in that park and negotiate a new relationship with Parks Canada. And uh, so that was what was driving that. And, and I think we've been instrumental, and Denise still continuing to act as the Tsashat voice uh, in dealing with uh, Parks Canada. And then we worked with the Huayat First mm-hmm. Nation uh, at the site of Huai, just off Bamfield, and we had a couple of uh, summers in the field there, uh, looking at one of their former heritage sites. A little different situation. It's a great village, by the way, where you can see these... Uh, house platforms in a whole row. That's the later village. Mm-hmm. But both Tsesha and Huhai have elevated terraces behind where we find the sort of mid, well, reaching mid Holocene, three to 5,000 year deposits in behind. So we were looking at all, all of that and now I've lost the train of thought. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what was it that... Uh, um, would bring the Huayat. By the way, the Huayat First Nation paid 
for two full seasons of excavation mm -hmm. and analysis out there. Mm -hmm. It was their funding entirely. This was the early one where they were trying to work with Treaty and, and they were sort of driving. Well, this is our later, the okay. later project. Okay. This is the third stage. Okay. And they went into Treaty. By this time, they're, they're part of Monwolf. Both the Toquat oh, okay. and the Huad are part of the Monwolf First Nation group right. that uh, negotiated that treaty. And they're looking at cultural tourism. Mm -hmm. And so they've got the big heritage site of Kihin that they're taking tours into now with still standing wooden house remains. It's an incredible site. But it's, uh, yeah, Ian knows it. And mm -hmm. it's uh, too fragile to run huge numbers of people through. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of plans eventually. The posts that are still standing there aren't going to stand forever. Yeah. And so there's plans for you know, maybe a replica village or something at, at some point. But in any case, they want a cultural, they want to develop a heritage center and work on cultural tourism as part of their post-treaty economy. It'll require getting a better road down to Bamfield. <laughs> and they've really been pushing for it. The yeah. it even we're, we're willing to put it in the treaty as part of their entitlement under treaty. That was rejected by government negotiators, but why? something will happen eventually. Mm -hmm. At the moment, it's a real discouragement yeah. to tourism. But uh, anyway, cultural tourism is what part of, of their many economic plans for their supporting themselves post-treaty. Mm -hmm. And so they were interested in us providing, you know, dates, materials for, a her for an interpretation center that sort of thing. Yeah. And then when we finish that story, this is getting a long story, but let me no, just finish this, this up. <laughs> to finish that up then, about, yeah, by this time I'm getting old. Yeah. Thinking <laughs> 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 right. I'm thinking, I'm not going to spend that much longer in the field. But uh, <laughs> we went back to work with the uh, Sashat and up at the top of the sound at the big site of Hequis, that's where Ian joined us. Yeah, coming relatively late <laughs> in the story. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ian uh, uh, had just finished his work at UBC, and I, I had to convince him, look at all this interesting historic material right. coming up. You really should write this up for your masters. What's more, we've got all this historic material from all our other sites as well. <laughs> well you didn't tell me that 90% of that was bags of nails <laughs> <laughs> you should have known was, yeah, yeah. No, it, was, it was an incredibly interesting site <laughs> so uh, we spent a few seasons actually we spent one major season there by that time we had um, picked up the uavic field school okay and nicole smith ran that in the last year at Huhai and the first year at hequis so we had all the uavic students out there and that was our real major year. And we also had Ian McKechnie working as mm -hmm. under the umbrella of the project. He was independent, you know, heading off doing his, his PhD research out on one of the outer coast sites. Uh, but it was under the umbrella and the funding of the, the Hequis archaeological project. Denis and I wondered about that. We made a trip out there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Denis and I and Ian and Gay Frederick, and who was going to do the faunal analysis, and Al Mackey, and oh out, out we went to, you know, recce the site and develop field plans. And uh, we went to Hequis, which is at the top of the sound where the clouds build up against the mountains on the mud flats. It was drizzling. <laughs> and then we went out through the sound and the clouds parted. The sun was shining on dice box. <laughs> and we had this lovely lunch on the beach at Dicebox and offered Ian that site while we'd go work at the other side <laughs> of Hequist. And we often questioned our sanity <laughs> on this, but uh, uh, nevertheless, the excavation was at Hequist and Ian could join us. And after that first year, we went back for a shorter field season at one of the sites that had a bigger historic component. Mm -hmm. uh, to get more material for Ian's thesis, not mm -hmm. that he didn't have enough. Yeah, I, yeah. I needed more. Yeah. And then the following <laughs> year, we went back to uh, dig the main site again, a terrace behind that's older, not as older as the not as old as the others, but still older than mm -hmm. the main site, 
to get a sa bigger sample of chipstone material for Kelsey McLean's thesis at, uh, at U of Vic. Uh, and she needed that, you know, she needed to build up that sample yeah. far more than Ian needed his mm -hmm. sample built up. Mm -hmm. So, so two later seasons for student MAs. And then I guess I sort of petered out on yeah. the whole thing, but my colleagues, uh, Denis is still out there. He is, uh, adopted into the Tsishat and he acts as their voice on, on heritage matters. And Ian McKechnie, uh, is running the UVic Field School as part of his regular load, mm -hmm. and the Barclay Sound projects are a big part of it. And mm -hmm. Ian here has continued <laughs> to be involved yeah. in it all this time later. Yeah, I join two weeks every year, go out and give Ian McKechnie a hand. The story gets confusing with all the Ians, the mm -hmm. Ian Sumter and Ian McKechnie, myself. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I'm really, I mean, it's really, incredible to be part of a project that's been running for 40 some years uh to to have that breath not that long <laughs> <laughs> periodically <laughs> but to have uh you, you talking about all these sites most of most of the primary areas of research around the major ancestral village sites yes um, but in between all of these big projects and as a part of them You've also been able to focus on smaller sites, like uh, more recently on Keith Island, we have uh, not village sites, but smaller procurement sites. Mm -hmm. uh, and to get the full scope of occupation across Barkley Sound, it's not something we often have in uh, BC. There's mm -hmm. a couple places. I mean, Prince Rupert Harbor is another one that comes to mind. Because that's been so ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about the grandfather clock. No, it's good. It's good. It actually gave me quite a scare. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Prince Rupert, of course, has been picked up on a number of, over a long period of time by different investigators with different yeah. questions. So it's got all of that. But just going back to our own efforts in Barclay Sound, yeah, particularly on the Toquat project, mm -hmm. we tested a number of sites and we had intensive survey. The project had further components. And then Denis and I have always favored an approach that's not just archaeology. Um, you know, when we went into the Toquat project survey, we already had the knowledge of the elders recorded. We knew the names of village sites and we knew what they were being used for. We could go straight to them and then see, you know, for any we tested, whether we could extend that back in time. So our approach has always been, you know, inter integrating traditional knowledge, ethnography, yeah. ethno-history, oral traditions, everything we can into this. I guess that was my reaction to a lot of the lawmaking processes of processual archaeology, is it didn't really feature that kind of heritage overall heritage that's important to First Nations. And in my work with First Nations, they don't distinguish between archaeologists and anthropologists mm -hmm. and others. Mm -hmm. They're all people who are studying them and their heritage. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to keep that integrated package together. Did you see that disconnect growing over the 1980s and uh, the failure of archaeological literature to actually provide for communities to provide something interesting or beneficial? Well, yeah, if you look at the top-level literature like American Antiquity, mm -hmm. I think by the end of the 80s it was repairing itself or, or starting to switch the pendulum. But certainly in the late 70s, unless you had advanced courses in statistics, you couldn't even read the damn journal. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> very I, true. I have a hard time reading that. Yeah. that I yeah. find it's a very specific yeah, decade. Yeah. I'm interested in this, Al, like the, especially you and Denis trying to work this out between the mid-late 70s and in through the 80s because, you, as you said, you didn't really get funding till about the early 90s. But you must have had ongoing relationships with those three communities and, and really trying to listen to them and, 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 and take their curiosities and interests and, and wants and needs into your research program. Can you talk a little bit about just how that came about and just how you formed that relationship and then sort of maybe how that relationship evolved over time? Because it's really powerful that you mm -hmm. have the communities really kind of co-producing it with you right and you obviously you've produced a ton of information from from the last 20 years of doing that research just with the, all the students that have come out of it and the theses and dissertations 
I guess I'd have to credit my colleague, Denis St. Clair, primarily mm-hmm. on that. He grew up in Port Alberni. He had personal friends among mm-hmm. the Tsishat and Hubechisat communities in Port Alberni. And so a lot of it was run on those personal contacts initially, and that extends to the Toquat as well. But then he and I would go out and talk to the leadership and find out what they're looking for as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did you find that they really gravitated towards archaeology as a sort of a tool that you could use, and they, they, they saw the relevance of it, and they saw how that could benefit their needs as well? And, and did they like having you guys as curators of that knowledge too, that sort of, I guess, expertise? I, I think that's true. I think there's very practical applications. I mean, I think in general, First Nations are very supportive of uh, efforts to investigate their heritage as long as it's done correctly mm-hmm. and respectfully and with them and there's something for them. And I remember being quite impressed. I think it was right after the first field season of Berkeley Sound with the Toquat project. We had just got radiocarbon dates back mm-hmm. and next thing I know the late Chief Bert Mack is using this in a speech and our archaeologists <laughs> tell us we've been out here for more than 4,000 years. And I thought, oh, bingo. Yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're of use. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it makes it worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're finding that too in some of the work we're doing with communities. It's it's fun to to, to, to merge the indigenous knowledge and, and, and what they've grown up with and the skills that we can offer and just see that p- dynamic play out in the field. I found mm-hmm. like it's really, it makes us feel better about the work. We feel like we're contributing. That's something that's meaningful. As you earlier said, you've been critical of processional archaeology. It sort of lost that focus on whose heritage you're studying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so Al, I know uh, you are retired now, but I also know that you're still extremely uh, busy. You you put out the Huai volume, which is now available online through SFU Press, that now that they've uh, digitized their entire back catalog. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It's incredibly useful. There's so many good um, texts through uh, SFU Press, Huai being one of them. Uh, and I know you are also an extremely avid collector of artwork. Now, we just did a quick break, and we took a bit of a tour around this beautiful collection that you have here in the house Mm. Uh, but there's one piece in this room that's super interesting and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about it sure Um, that particular piece is (coughs) excuse me (coughs) sorry that particular piece was called Whaler's Moon it's by Patrick Amos who's new channel lives in Port Alberni Mm -hmm. and uh, one morning I just got a got a one morning I got a phone call and it was Patrick saying, Al, you need a mask. <laughs> and I said, Patrick, you need rent money, right? <laughs> and uh, so we talked a bit about it and f- mm-hmm. we'd been doing the whaling research that's come out of our excavations. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you know, you've been doing all these moon masks lately, Patrick. Do me a whaler's moon. And we talked a bit about what should be on it, and then I just left it to him, and I never dreamt it would turn out like that. And I mean that in a very good way, because it's always uh, a bit dangerous uh, in a commission, but Patrick did a bang-up job on this. So the central moon figure is the whaler. And you'll see a split hyatlik, the lightning serpent, the harpoon of the thunderbird, See on the forehead, and then he's split on each side of the whaler's mm-hmm. face. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone's listening to this, they'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> we'll put up a photo. <laughs> There's a three-dimensional uh, thunderbird above, and you know the thunderbird is the whaler of the spiritual realm, for yeah. those who, who aren't aware. And notice all the abalone shell and the copper on the thunderbird's knees, again, to reflect the light really enhances the image. Mm -hmm. And to make it archaeological for me, Patrick split one of those old blue trade beads for the Thunderbird's eyes. Oh yeah, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, I also didn't even see that. (laughs) And then down below, um, he put on this very naturalistic whaling scene. So there's the guys out in the, the whaling canoe And look at the line. You see the whales already had the first line implanted. And so there's a separately braided line. And those floats aren't just painted on. They're cut out leather 
on the line mm -hmm. and note the whale with the long pectoral fins, Pat's clearly made this a humpback whale because mm -hmm. he was aware of our research out there where in Barclay Sound, unlike Ozette and other places on the coast, in Barclay Sound, the whale remains are overwhelmingly humpback. So, so in a couple of points, Patrick has designed this to reflect our research. And so this is really, you know, when I look up at it, this is in my dining room <laughs> on the wall. I look at it all the time. Uh, I just love the ancient themes, the thunderbird, the whaler, done in a very modern style and informed with archaeological knowledge and material. So it's really a meaningful piece. I didn't notice the copper on the knees until you yeah. mentioned it. And, and I really love the light blue in the face. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just a stunning blue. And it does, it just demonstrates that conversation between uh, the community, the archaeological research, and how it is integrated into contemporary art. And it just, I think it's a good kind of summary of it's all like the manifested in this in this piece it's awesome mm -hmm. are the are those seal then seal uh, skin floats yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. sea lion floats yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's incredible the cedar line connecting them all what's drawn you to art because it's all in your house it's everywhere <laughs> <laughs> like uh, what is it about it that y at sfu for many years i taught an upper levels mm -hmm. class in that's northwest right. coast native art and uh i've always been drawn to it as one of the powerful visual manifestations of Northwest Coast culture. Mm -hmm. um, New Channel Thart particularly, because I've spent so long with them, but one can't help but be really just awed by Haida art as mm -hmm. well. And in fact, once you start into the studying the Northwest Coast tradition, there's all these different regional traditions, each with their own power and appeal, but quite different from each other. Salish arts come on its own in recent decades, for instance, mm -hmm. with Susan Point, for instance, well, right. absolute master of, of the art form, but it's very different than what Robert Davidson of the Haida do. And that's right. one of the appeals of Northwest Coast art, I mm -hmm. think. But also it just brings in a a very powerful, visual, but emotional way, the strength of Northwest Coast culture is through. Mm. And some of the most powerful parts of the, the text, like the Hawaii text, and, and those are the, the very rare examples of, uh, of <coughs> creative uh, artwork in the archaeological record. And I'm thinking of a few key pieces, that Thunderbird whale. Okay. And, and that, uh, that's one I use all the time in my lectures. In recent <laughs> years, if we go back to my post-retirement stuff, I'll, I'll touch on some of this, but okay. uh, in recent years, uh, you know, I've been giving, doing quite a bit on, on whaling out of our research, and uh, uh, that, and got a number of talks, and that little bone pendant that Ian's referring to mm -hmm. keeps uh, coming back up. It's a beautiful little thing. At first, you might have trouble realizing what it is. It's got two different eyes. But you look at the top eye and you look right and you see, ooh, that's Thunderbird. His crest on top, his heavy downturned beak. But if you look at the lower eye and look left, it's a whale. And you see the mouth line. And so the crest on top for the Thunderbird becomes the dorsal fin of the whale. The Thunderbird's beak downturned becomes the uh, whale's tail. And so it's two powerful things. It's that old Northwest Coast, sorry, that's an old uh, New Channel th theme of Thunderbird and whale, the whaler, spiritual whaler, and the whale, the prey. And it's also a very ancient Northwest Coast art tradition of visual punning that things can be two things at once. It depends how you look at <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> how does, I mean, I mean, that's the thing when we, you know, you're doing archaeology, you're looking at a lot of tiny fish bones or discarded clamshells that are used monumentality to sort of build up these villages. But when you find those pieces, it, it really draws it back to humanity, doesn't it? Because sometimes it does. you, you can get sidetracked by sort of these functional things, how these people live. But it, that's really what makes us human, how people create these these things in their head and how they These get manifested. Moments. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, you know, 
it's those little herring bones or what's the foundation <laughs> right. of the whole you know economy why people were there why the whales were there all of that mm -hmm. but you know there are these odd moments in these special pieces that suddenly make the whole thing part of a cultural and belief system Mm -hmm. that, that must really resonate with the communities when they see something like that. that it's just the power in the wild. And they know mm -hmm. that their ancestors created that. Yeah, yeah. So, Al, you're retired now. I don't think I've seen you since your official retirement. How? how oh, sure it? you have. It was long ago. <laughs> 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 I, I remember there was talk of retirement. Uh, but then now it's happened. I retired from uh, Douglas College. I took early retirement quite a lot of years ago. Mm -hmm. I continued uh, teaching at SFU for a few years after that, but then I discovered teaching one evening class fouls up travel plans every bit as much as a full load of teaching does. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I discontinued that, <clears throat> but I, you know, I wanted to retire from teaching, but I didn't ever want to give up archaeology. So I have been writing and doing other things. You mentioned the Huhai volume we've got out. That was post-retirement. Nice. I've been working on whaling research. Uh, I'm sure you guys have seen the uh, BC Studies volume that Ian McKechnie and I did, These Outer Shores, on yep, Outer Coast Adaptations. And my paper in that was on whaling. And then most recently, I've taken that in a totally different direction. I've got a paper in press right now with the Cambridge Archaeological Journal on non-human whalers. Mm -hmm. And this is an outgrowth of uh, talks I was giving on whaling. So, Where's this coming from? All right. <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. It takes a long time, but <laughs> maybe just a little bit. Uh, obviously Thunderbird. Thunderbird's Everywhere in New Chanwulthartas, the spiritual whaler. Okay. Chiefs draw names and prerogatives from Thunderbird. Even today, working with the Huayat people, Tlishan is the chiefly name. It means Thunderbird. And so these, this is a theme throughout contemporary and past New Chanwulthartan traditions. And I started looking at the rock art from Tla'us. A Dididat site on the West Coast Trail, trying to figure out what's going on. Whales, people. I incorporated eventually the uh, rock art just outside of Ozette as well in this, this study. But uh, everyone's looked at these humans and whales and said, okay, whaling scene. I started looking at it thinking, those aren't whales, they're orcas. Mm -hmm. And they're not prey, they're predators. And so here we're drawing on the, you know, the relatively recent biological knowledge that we have uh, probably three different genetically distinct populations of orca with totally different diets, and one of them, the transients, they're mammal eaters, including other cetaceans. Wow. And so if we are learning that now, we've got to recognize the new channels would have known that hundreds of years ago through direct observations out there on the waters. And so the paper's subtitled Reappraising Orca in Archaeological Context. Yeah. I go into that Ozette wooden effigy, you know, the one of the yeah. whale fin with right. the 700 right. yeah, yeah, sea yeah. otter teeth mm -hmm. set in, the shape of the thunderbird and serpent. Wait, were they sea otter teeth? I always thought they were a percula. No, they're sea otter teeth. Oh, come wow. on, Ian. Come on. And, uh, <laughs> I'm catching up. <laughs> Didn't you take my course? Anyway, looking at that, you know, no one's ever looked at that before and said, that's an orca. It's not a whale, it's an orca. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not that an orca isn't a whale, but actually it's the biggest member of the dolphin Orcus, family. Right, yeah. And it mm -hmm. certainly would have been seen in a different context than the humpbacks and the greys that were the prey whales. Where was I going with that? Let's go back to the Klaus petroglyphs. It's a panel. It's a. It's quite a large petroglyph pa panel. Right? Yeah, there's actually two separate sites, mm. uh, right nearby. Okay. Uh, okay. So there's these row of orcas, and above is a human. Okay. Direct association. The humans definitely female. It's been very clearly yeah. shown okay. as female. Uh, just outside of Ozette, at the Wedding Rocks site, there are isolated vulva forms 
everywhere on the rock surface. So what's this emphasis on female? And then you have to go into the whole ethnographic tradition of the role of the whaler's wife mm -hmm. in whaling. She helped in all aspects of ritual, but at points she represented the whale. So when whalers were out in their canoes on the whaling expeditions, they couldn't use the word for whale. That was taboo. They referred to the whale as something like noble lady, referring to the chief's wife. Meanwhile, she's lying completely still, <coughs> excuse me, completely still in her bed so that the whale will be similarly placid and allow the whalers to approach. So she's metaphorically the whale. And so I'm sort of looking at this, and everyone said, that's a whaling scene. I said, yeah, of course it is. But it's quite different, I think, than what's been interpreted. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's my... This is fantastic. So there's, a, there's, there's a role here where the, 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 the woman embodies the, the whale to help the hunters. I think that is the case. The, the bring and it's clear in the ethnographies yeah. that that is the case. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of writing I've been doing lately. That one's in press now. That's very exciting. Yeah, um, it, it sounds like retirement has just allowed you to write about the really, really cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also the fact I had to surrender all my collections to repositories. So now I've got to look. Uh, now I've got to look <laughs> at the synthesis kind of stuff rather than the counting little bone points kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But also I've been doing some applied stuff and that's been rewarding. In particular, I've been working um, on legal cases. Mm -hmm. I've done major uh, reports for both comprehensive and specific claims for the Tsishat, another one for the Lake Cowichans, and I testified in court on the New Channel Tribal, for the New Channel Tribal Council on the Ahousa et al. fisheries case and that was that was really rewarding mm -hmm. and i have another legal expert witness gig coming up but uh, i can't talk about that yet until right. i sign my contract the, yeah. the one with the fishing is that with the herring and they this dfo saying they have no records of herring or, or were you, were we talking about this or no the the case i was involved in would yeah. be far broader than just herring okay. all species all of species? fish in traditional territories okay. and the right to sell fish mm -hmm. in traditional territory from traditional from territories tra okay. okay and not only um not only mm -hmm. species known archaeologically and ethnographically but uh does that actually encompass all harvestable species well that's the cl i'm not sure of the, the yes i think so because you know there's very little out there that wouldn't be in the archaeological reports and the ethnographic literature. The ethnographic literature, of course, talks about the major fish, the big ones, the important ones, all of that. Mm -hmm. But in the studies that uh, people like Ian McKechnie are doing, for instance, everything that's out there in the sea is being consumed. It appears in our middens, everything from herring and anchovy to bluefin tuna. Not right. orca. I, I was just about to ask That's this not a question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but also let's let's go on that again. Yeah. That's part of my. If I can go back to my no, article. No, that's great. I wanted to ask yeah. the same that, question. So that's part of it. Is that we have all this gray and humpback whale, and we've got other species as well, but in very small numbers. Small numbers mm -hmm. of right and even blue and sperm whales. Wow. Uh, orca is extremely rare in the archaeological record, even mm -hmm. though there are accounts of young guys going out to hunt to show their bravery and prowess, but that's typical stupid young guy uh, <laughs> sort of, sort of thing, I think. No, I, sh I, sh <laughs> I shouldn't say stupid, but, you know, bra bravado, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But normally they weren't hunted, and elders tell us that that's because of their supernatural power much of which is manifest in their ability to become wolf. The wolf and the orca are simply the land and sea variants of the same animal. I've personally been told on a number of occasions by different people, oh yeah, yeah, I saw wolf tracks in the, the beach and looked out and there's that orca fin heading off. They're the same animal. So that orca predatory behavior in the sea, is he's the wolf of the sea. And so when I try to bring all this together in this article, I've had telling, about, uh, telling people about it, some have said, well, Thunderbird's everywhere in the art. Why isn't Orca then 
even though there are orca mm -hmm. depictions, but it's not, it's not common. I say, but orca is everywhere, but as wolf, because mm. wolf is everywhere in the art. And it helps to explain, I've always wondered why, you have some combination of these four beings on those really important new channel painted screens that are the major ceremonial items in new channel culture. Some combination of thunderbird, lightning serpent, whale, and wolf. What's the wolf doing in that combination? The wolf's incredibly important in new channel ceremony, of course, it's the primary initiating being, but why in that combo I think it's because he also stands in as orca, as whaler. Is he a shapeshifter? Like, I know it's a silly question, but like, can he go between both worlds then? Yes. Easily. Yes. Yeah. It talks, uh, 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 Sapir even recorded uh, a tradition of these wolves running out of this cave, turning into orca as they go into the water and the tail folding up and becoming the dorsal fin. Mm. And contemporary New Channel artists have riffed on that theme numerous times in prints, and you'll see, you know, parts of the wolf turning into the uh, into the orca, or you'll just see a, a wolf with a dorsal fin. They're all talking about that belief in art. It's absolutely fantastic. It's, it's this, cool. this article's impress. Yeah, I, I can't wait to read this. Yeah, <laughs> can you send us an advance copy <laughs> of proof when it goes? Through? I didn't work that art, but last art stuff into it, but mm -hmm. uh, well, still, mm -hmm. <laughs> very cool. And no, I love this. I mean, this is where culture comes alive, and it's just to me it just shows how little we know, but maybe we don't know because you're pulling all this together in retirement. I find this and the reevaluation of all these sites like that's a well-known site, and mm -hmm. to, to still have these new insights about what is. A very well visited and well recorded site is, is pretty cool. Yeah, and there's more mm -hmm. to learn here. There's more we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Al. This has been fantastic. It's always good to come over and chat and <laughs> <laughs> catch up. Yeah, thank um, you for making time for us. This was oh, wonderful no to problem. sit down. I'm happy to drink your beer and talk. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you sign us off? I don't think I've ever signed us off Yeah, before. this is your first time. Well, you know, it's, it's your supervisor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can do this, guys. All right, try it. So this has uh, been The Transect. I'm uh, Ian. My name is Cody. And I'm Sean P. Connaught. And thank you for listening. And uh, Thank you, Al. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you, Al. And uh, <laughs> tune in next time for The Transect. <laughs>